We're on uh, Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, last time was the very first time I didn't make it through a whole question or answer. So we're hoping to finish today. We'll see, because we're starting late. Uh, but if you'd open up your Psalter hymnals to the Heidelberg Catechism, question, uh, Lord's Day 21, we're going to begin by reading it responsively together. Lord's Day 21, we're going to do all, all three questions and answers. Question 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Church? I believe that the Son of God, through his spirit and word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community I am and always will be a living member. Question 55. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that each member should consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Question 56. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. Well, as I said, last week we began to look at... Um, uh, Lord say 21, and your pastor got a little distracted by himself, and we spent a lot of time talking about the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, but in one sense I don't feel guilty about that, because uh, I think it's a really neglected topic in uh, the church today in North America, and so at the very least, uh, if you didn't get anything else out of it, I want you to get the church is actually central to God's plan, and central to our lives as Christians. It's not uh, simply something that's an add-on. This morning we're going to pick up with question 55. What do you understand by the communion of the saints? And the catechism gives two parts to its answer. First, that believers, one and all, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Now, here the catechism is rightly emphasizing that we have shared life, I'm going to use that term a lot, shared life with Jesus Christ, both individually and corporately. And that's an incredible privilege. Um, many of you know the term koinonia, Greek word, is frequently translated fellowship or sometimes communion. And those are perfectly good translations. Um, but my problem with fellowship is we've tended to think of fellowship as we have coffee and donuts together, which is great. But actually, the way this is used in the Bible is it's stronger than that. This term means shared life. It was used in secular Greek to talk about people going into business together, like yoking their fortunes together. It was even used for marriage, which makes good sense because Christ marries the church. right? So it's much deeper than simply sort of a casual, superficial, yeah, we spend some time with each other, or with Jesus. Can anyone think of a passage from God's word that teaches this truth that we have shared life with Jesus Christ? 
Because it doesn't matter if it's in the catechism if it's not in the Bible. Oh, although I want to assure you that what's in the catechism is in the Bible. Right? We're not here editing it. Um, any, any passages? Peter? I was going to go with 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 is a fantastic place to go because it talks about us being members of one another, but specifically being members of Christ's body. We are members of his body. We are therefore in fellowship with him, in communion with him. We have shared life with him in a very deep way. Anywhere, anywhere else? Allison. Uh, Jesus in the upper room uh, saying, anyone loves me, John 14, 22. Anyone loves me, uh, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Yeah, that's a beautiful passage, right? So it's not just shared life with Jesus. Um, Allison's pointing out that in the upper room, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, the father and I will come and make our home with him, right? And that, that's really just a, a remarkable truth. I want to give you one more passage because I think this is a helpful one as it connects our fellowship with Jesus with the church. First John. Um, John begins his letter like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, right? Shared life with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Right? So please note that what he's talking about there is much more than having coffee and donuts. Nothing wrong with coffee and donuts. Uh, but, but it's much more than that. And Jesus is tying together, I'm sorry, um, John is tying together our shared life with Jesus Christ with our shared life with the church. That actually leads me to a, a second point. The catechism, oddly enough to me, leaves something out. It's there by implication. It's not entirely left out but I would have thought they would have made it explicit. Does, does anyone see what that is in this question? This is the, um, I have an idea in my head, can anyone guess what it is? I think the catechism in talking about the Apostles' Creed confession about the believing in the communion of saints leaves something out, or more accurately, it makes it implicit where I would have expected them to make it explicit. So we just talked about the communion that we have with Jesus Christ. Is there another aspect to what the Apostles' Creed is teaching? Okay, it's really hard to guess what's in my head, so I'll just give you the answer. It leaves out our communion with one another. The Apostles' Creed, when it was written, and certainly as it's been confessed throughout church history, intends both. And a big part of the communion of saints is, if you are a child of God, you are a brother or sister of every other believer who ever lives. And therefore, the shared life is not just vertical, it's also horizontal. We're being brought into God's family. It addresses it implicitly, but that's a great point. Kristen says, doesn't the second part address that? Let's look at the second part, and I'm going to tell you why I think it's a little bit, a little bit light on this, um, but we'll see. The second part says, second, that each member should consider it a duty 
to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of the other members. Okay, and I say that implicitly is teaching. We do have a type of shared life with one another. But does anyone see a little bit of a problem with that, at least in saying that's sufficient? Is that a sufficient declaration of our shared life? Was well, it the use of the word duty, meaning my heart may not, I, I recognize that a duty versus the reality of a brother and sister, let's turn out and say, I have a duty to, and your heart can kind of be a little. Yeah, so Scott says it's the issue of duty. Now, duty's a good word, right? Don't make duty a bad word in your vocabulary. Duty is a good word. But if you were going to describe a family, right, it's true that in a family that husbands and wives have duties towards each other. Parents and children have duties towards each other. But if all you did was explain the duties that husbands and wives have to each other and children and parents have to each other, you really haven't gotten to family, right? Shared life in a family is far more than just our duties. It's our shared joys, our loves, our mutual encouragements, and all those things that come from our face-to-face, -face, deep emotional relationship with one another. And the reason why I, I'm a little unsatisfied that the catechism doesn't talk about that with the church is because the church is a family, right? So you can't just make up a checklist and say, you know, I brought a casserole to, to Johnny when Johnny was sick. I am doing my duty, right, as a member of Christ's family. Well, it's true that that's a good thing to do. Although if you want to connect it with this morning's sermon... A good thing to do when it expresses your love for Johnny, your concern for them. It's a tangible marker of what should be an actual relationship that gets developed. Yes, Allison. You're, you're not overemphasizing this. This is crucial. I was the first Christian in my family as a 17-year-old shortly before going to college. And I was very aware of the existence of Christ and still does. When you, when you have to travel, you go to school, you move to a new community, get a new job, is that when you show up, you belong, right? This is my father's house. I belong before I even know you. And I think that's a, a, a very important truth. Yes, Allison. In fact, before, every time, we've thought about it several times in our 40 years of marriage, and every time we did, we always found the church first, before a house, because you have a church, you've got family. So let me let me say Allison raises a really important practical point because almost all of you are going to move again some point in your life. Not me and Kristen, we're never moving ever again. But for the rest of you, uh, I don't like moving. Um, it's very likely, and, and Allison pointed out, that you find the church first before you find where you're going to stay. Um, one of the things that developed in the United States, and I think this came a lot out of the 50s and then the 60s, because people took for granted that wherever you go, there'll be a church you can go to. And it turns out that's not the case. I don't know how true it was in the 50s, because I wasn't born until 1962. But I do know 
that uh, a whole bunch of people, including my parents when they moved to the Poconos, they assumed there would be a church there. And then they had to drive further and further and further, right? So that's a very practical piece of, uh, of advice for us. Make sure there's a church that you want to belong to before you pick up roots and move somewhere. Um, we actually had an issue with this with our daughter. Um, our daughter, Rachel, is uh, considering moving. And um, she looked for, um, she's looking at a town, and she asked us to check out one of the churches. She's thinking, it's a big church in town, big Baptist church. She's thinking about going there. And I, I can't give you an honest evaluation of a church. We're just looking at online worship service. But one of the things that struck me was, it's a large church, and the staff members, or at least the people up on stage, I don't know if they were all paid, they talked in a way that made it seem like it's an us and them. Like, we're so glad that you are here for the product that we're providing for you. And that really concerns me, right? Because, actually, I told the young man this the other day out at Gordon-Conwell. He was talking about um, having to adjust his preaching for the audience. And I said, well, I don't preach to an audience. I preach to a congregation. D do you understand the difference, right? An audience can be someone you're trying to entertain, but we actually gather as the people of God. So that's just one marker that we saw, but it's a, it, to me it's a concerning marker that this could be we have a production and people come for the production. That is not the church, right? Church is a family. We belong to each other. We have to be committed to each other. Again, it's there by implication in the catechism. I just think it's worth making explicit. Um, let me give you a, a passage from Romans that points to this, this connectedness. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Right? We're members of each other. Which also means that you, you, know, you get upset with something going on in the church, you go talk to the elders about it, you try to get it fixed. You don't just leave. Right? Because this is not, um, the, the church across town got a better music director who sings better than our pastor. Look, when you joined the church, you knew everybody sung better than me. Right? But, but people do leave and move to churches for something that, it's true, people do move churches for things that are about that superficial. And we shouldn't do that. Because you can do that with McDonald's. If you like McDonald's and then one day you decide, I'm going to go to Wednesday, Wendy's next week, that's a perfectly good thing to do. But the church isn't McDonald's. Right? We belong to each other as members of one another. Um, I trust that's obvious to you, but it's good to remind ourselves of. Uh, it also makes clear that we don't simply attend church, which is an expression that's commonly used. We don't attend church. We are members of one another, and therefore we need to invest each other, uh, ourselves in each other's lives. Any questions at all about question and answer 55? John. <laughs> I just, I think in this day and age, too, that, like, of the saints is really important. Yeah. It's not just communion in the communities. Mm -hmm. It's that we belong very specifically to one another in Christ. Yeah. So many churches or Christian organizations just want you to be a member of the communion of people. Yeah. Because Christians should be. I have a friend of mine who's not a um, Christian. He's a Quaker, but he's, he's, not, a, he's not a believer. Uh, who was just lamenting the other day how uh, 
politicians keep wanting to talk about us as being a family, like the nation is a family. And the nation is not a family, right? We're neighbors. Church is a family. Sarah. say it's sad that it's unique if if the people in the church who are your brothers and sisters in Christ and their children are a distraction from you doing what you want you're not thinking rightly about the church and, and if you did that in your own house you're not thinking right about your own family now sadly because we're sinners um, there are times when as parents in the house we get frustrated with our children and just want we want to be left alone so we could do our thing. Okay, maybe that hasn't happened to any of you, but it has happened to me. And, um, and I got to realize, well, I'm thinking about the wrong stuff here. My daughter is more important, and our relationship is more important than pretty much anything else I'm going to be doing. Yes, Allison. <laughs> Yes, sweetheart. So in, in, my, in my search to help Rachel find a church or a place to worship, I've been reading the uh, doctrinal beliefs of a particular church this morning. And uh, I was appalled by this because I've never heard it stated this way before. But it said, we believe that God's holiness demands that believers be holy in character, behavior, and association. God's word commands believers to separate ourselves unto God from worldliness, unbelief, ecumenism, and ecclesiastical apostasy. Believers are to separate from any organizational entity, church, or individual which denies the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ or the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. The fruit of new evangelicalism, which is the repudiation of biblical separation, is the blending of theological liberalism with fundamentalism and is contrary to God's work. Trends including but not limited to the charismatic movement in the emerging church are in line with scripture and must be avoided. In order to be obedient and loyal to our Savior, we must also separate, separate from disobedient and brethren. We are unapologetic in our stand on the whole counsel of God and the scriptures at the same time generously speak the truth in love. Yeah, so Christian. Christians read a doctrinal statement which had a very, very strong view about separation. 
Now, there is a right biblical practice of separation, which is in our own lives, we need to be separated from the world, right, in terms of how we behave. And there are going to be times when you're doing activities with your non-Christian friends where you've got to say, I can't even go with you into this activity. I know that happens in the workplace. It certainly has happened to me when I was working outside the church. However, the idea that you are supposed to separate yourself from all other Christians who see things differently than your church does is actually a repudiation of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We always need to remember that when we look at the Anglican church down the street and the Lutheran church down the street and the Southern Baptist church and stuff, it does turn out that there are areas where we disagree with each other and therefore at least one of us is wrong. Could be us, could be them. We, we take truth very seriously, and, and so that's important. But there are brothers and our sisters. We're going to spend eternity with them. I think of um, C.S. Lewis. Say, look at Allison, because I know she loves C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis's line that if you could see the most miserable Christian in the world as they're going to be in glory, you'd be surely tempted to fall down on your knees and worship them. Right? That's true. And, and they're your brothers and sisters. I hope you wouldn't do this in your family. I mean, every family has a black sheep. Um, actually, I'm not. But uh, every family has, you know, if you have enough children in the family, there's going to be someone at different times in their lives, or maybe we all do this to each other, who embarrass you. Um, in the Church of Jesus Christ, we don't say, be gone, right? We say, my sister. And sometimes we correct each other. We're going to say, you know, it would be better if you said this. We're going to encourage you in faith. And this is these, these areas where we have theological disagreements, we're called to work together for unity. Um, here's a question that actually relates to that. I'm sorry, I'm drifting here, and I, I do want to finish this week. Um, if you have to choose between truth and unity, which do you choose? Ray. Truth, Ray says truth. Is everybody with Ray, you choose truth rather than unity? Okay, there's a reason why we were tempted to say that, and I want to say you really ought to feel the tension of the question, because that's a false choice. What we want to choose is faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And faithfulness to Jesus Christ requires us to embrace both truth and unity. Right? I, you knew it was a trick question. It was for me. Yeah, so, 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 so what we're trying to choose is faithfulness to Jesus. And faithfulness to Jesus means we can't just say, I'm a truth guy, you know, cutting off everybody who doesn't see things my way until I change my mind in two weeks. Then I've got to cut off my old self. Um, I, I, actually, it was very helpful to me to be able to look back, you know, 30, 40 years ago and go, yeah, yeah, I believe that. I, I, you know, I went to a dispensational church and the whole thing, right? And I don't go, oh, how could you believe that? I go, well, yeah, I, I've been there. Let me show you a better way. Um, okay, sorry for the wandering. Let's, do the, let's try to get this last question done. Um, question 56. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by his grace, God grants me the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. That's a great answer. Um, let's unpack it just a bit. First, since we're talking about forgiveness of sins, we've got to define sin. What is sin? 
Martha says, any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, great answer, the catechism. Your, your parents did well with you. Um, one of the things I like about that answer, well, actually, I like a couple things about that answer, really three. Um, first, sin is objective. It, 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 there's actually a standard that God has revealed, right? It's, it's not how I happen to feel. You know, I feel one way, you feel another way, and you should feel like I do. It's an objective standard revealed by God. Secondly, it doesn't put the standard above God himself. It's something that God reveals out of his own character. And third, it has both sides. I think most of us are naturally tempted to think that transgressions are what sins are. I, I cross the boundary, I do something I shouldn't. And we should remember that just as much Failing to do what we ought is also sin, right? So you have a brother or sister who's struggling in the church, and you, you, you recognize it. You see they have needs, and you leave them alone. Well, that's sin. It's every bit as much sin as it is for you to go do something bad to them. And you can't go, I didn't do anything. You ever do that when you were young? Your children do. I didn't do anything, right? And God goes, yeah, that's the whole point. You're supposed to do something. So I think that's a helpful, helpful definition of sin. Questions on sin? Right. Um, not really a question, just more so we do our, our corporate confession of sin on Sunday. Mm -hmm. But even in our own devotion, we should be asking God for forgive, to forgive our yeah. sins strictly for the fact that we acknowledge we still sin even though in Christ we can yeah, th thank you, because you also sparked another thought that I, I do want to say to everyone. So we do a, a corporate confession of sin, and that's good, and it actually should help you think about this is something I ought to be doing. But our corporate confession of sin, by definition, is going to be very general, very general terms. We're actually called to confess our particular sins particularly. And by that, I don't mean that you're going to be like Martin Luther and spend two hours rummaging through your conscience trying to figure out every sin that you've committed so that you can confess, this is Martin Luther before he became reformed, by the way, um, so that, so that uh, you can confess all your sins and just beat yourself up. That is not what I'm saying. I am saying that if you're trying to follow Jesus, which you all ought to be, then Jesus is going to bring things to your attention that you're not doing what you should be doing, either sins of omission or sins of commission. And when it comes to your attention, you ought to repent of that particular sin particularly. Don't just try to do the, oh, Lord, thank you that you forgive me for everything. Right? Say, Lord, I, I was angry with my brother unjustly. Forgive me and work in my heart. Right? I, I set a self-help project. I, I need your grace. I need the work of your Holy Spirit in my heart that I will think differently about my brother or sister. Whatever the sin happens to be. Um, please do that. I think it's very easy for us to go take a piece of theology which is good I am completely forgiven of every sin I'm ever going to commit because of Christ, and therefore forget that God is also calling us to deal with our particular sins in history. Right? Don't, don't let the doctrine of election or the doctrine of Christ's atonement swallow up everything else Christ tells us to do. Um, the Catechism speaks of sin both in terms of what we do and fail to do, as I say, and also in terms of our fallen human nature. And I think you can connect this to our sermon passage from last week. Uh, Jesus says, a good tree does not bring forth bad fruit, nor a bad tree good fruit. Our sins flow out of who we are, 
and they reflect the fact that we are not fully sanctified. Um, as has been said, we don't, we're not simply sinners because we commit sins. We sin because we're sinners. That is, I need a heart change. And the good news is, is God's in the business of changing our hearts. Um, the Catechism says that because of Christ's satisfaction, God will not judge us either for our sinful nature or for the specific sins that we commit. So what does the word satisfaction mean? Because of Christ's satisfaction, it is not what the Rolling Stones mean. You know, I can't get no satisfaction. That is not it. In fact, you got satisfaction. Sarah. I think it comes from the left words, uh, satis and bakio, which bakio is to make, and satis is full. So it's to make full, to be fulfilled, quota. It is correct that that's where it comes from in Latin, but it actually has to do with making a full, you're right, making a full payment. So the term satisfaction specifically has to do with our debt that we owe to God. And you know, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you have two different translations here. One is, uh, forgive us our transgressions. The other is, forgive us our debts. And when we sin, we actually are not giving God what we owe him. And we're incurring a debt, a debt that we can't repay. And when Christ makes a full satisfaction for us, he pays that debt. Right? To Telestai, paid in full. That, that's what's going on. And because Christ pays the debt in full, you're forgiven. Yes, Ray. <clears throat> the, uh, the challenge of the struggle that we face in, in Scripture is pretty clear that God has given us a way of escape, yet we still sin. Yeah. Even though if you, if you look at your sin, you can always see that there is a way of escape, but we choose not to. Uh, Ray, Ray, that's a good point. You remind me, uh, you're going to get a very, very short story from me, but it reminds me when I was in the military, I was a young Marine Corps officer, the only Christian officer on my ship, so I'm teaching Bible studies to these young enlisted guys, and the chaplain decided, huh, I should do that too. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, but there's a line officer, a combat officer leading Bible studies, and I as a chaplain am not doing so. So, so I, went, I went to his Bible study, and uh, a young guy that was also in my church, who I, who I just, just loved, was a Lance Corporal, uh, and he's teaching this passage, and the chaplain says at one point, you know, sometimes you're just in a place where you just can't help but sin. And I said, well, you know, Paul says, you know, that you never led into a temptation where God doesn't have an avenue of escape for you. And he says, I am not making this up. Yeah, I just don't think that's true. And this Lance Corporal jumped out of his chair. So you remember now, the chaplain's a commissioned officer, and he jumped out of his chair and goes, what do you mean that's not true? This is the word of God. <laughs> so uh, anyway, sorry, a little blast from my past. But I want to bring another application here as we close. Uh, it is true that God always does leave us a way out, and it is true, regretfully, that you're going to keep sinning. Okay? Because we are not fully sanctified, and I'm going to keep sinning too, which is really hard. I want you to realize that the fact that Christ provides a full satisfaction for our sins is not designed to give us an easy chair. It's designed to give us assurance of our full acceptance with God so that out of that acceptance and out of his love, we press on in holiness. Right? We press on seeking um, to be what we already are in him. Right? And that's really what the catechism says. The catechism says... Rather, by his grace, God grants me 
the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into judgment. I'm sorry, let me back that up a little bit. I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, and here's the point, which I need to struggle against all my life. The fact that Christ has paid for all your sins doesn't mean that your sins are no big deal. And in fact, now in Christ you are empowered to do something you couldn't possibly do on your own, and that's actually to win the battle. See, unlike, this, unlike the, um, the unbeliever, you do have an escape for your sins. They actually don't. If you ever think about this, unbelievers never stop sinning, ever. Even when they do things that we rightly say are good deeds, those good deeds are actually sinful good deeds. They're done out of bad motives. They're not done out of love for Christ. They're not done out of faith, right? And, and now you, have, you are indwelt by the, by the way, appreciate them. Appreciate God's um, common grace and the work he's doing in the lives of unbelievers. Right? I'm not saying put that down. But now as a Christian, you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you are empowered to live a holy life. And God says, you ought to do that. Yeah. Any last thoughts before we close? Well, I think that, like your, especially your closing comment there, and so, like the systematic nature of the Apostles' Creed or the Heidelberg Catechism, like you just took it through question 53, 54, 55, and 56, and they are all working together to make things, make it, that's how it works. Yeah. They're not individually separated things, and even though they can stand alone, mm-hmm. They work together in a systematic fashion, the full, like upwards and downwards and sideways mm. and all of these directions. Yeah. And um, I just think it's amazing how it's structured again. John, John makes a really good point. The catechisms are immensely helpful for us because they are structured so carefully and they help us see things in a systematic way. I want to give you a picture rather than order the catechism that also does the very same thing. Remember that you are saved in Jesus Christ, right? If you remember that, you won't divide things up. You won't think I can have Jesus as my Savior and not my Lord because there's one Savior. If you're in Christ, you have him as both your Savior and as your Lord. You won't think that I can get justified but skip sanctification because justification and sanctification both take place in Jesus Christ. Right, so remember that your entire life is now hidden with God in Christ, and in Christ you receive all the blessings of the covenant. That will help unify your thinking in a really positive and biblical way. Uh, Ryan, would you close in prayer?